This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions today. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome back. Today we have a live show, so we will be taking questions throughout the program. The phone number's here. Let me give them to you now, and I'll give them to you again during the show. 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Now, if you're a little bit shy, don't want to come on the air, you can shoot us over a text at info at alessimd.com, and we're happy to answer any questions you have. I've been looking forward to today's show. been away for a little bit. Uh, we're going to have a couple of guests on. In the studio, we're going to have Ms. Patricia Moriarty. Ms. Moriarty is heading up a program for hemochromatosis awareness, a hereditary blood condition that we see mostly in people of northern European descent. And we're going to talk a little bit about what she's doing to raise awareness about that treatable condition. We love treatable conditions. Dr. Jeffrey Gordon is going to be on in the second half hour. He's president of the Connecticut State Medical Society. He's going to talk a little bit about what's going on at the State House here in Connecticut, both past and present, uh, specifically how it affects our patients, how it affects health care in our state. And he's going to be chatting about a new thing that I didn't know anything about until this program. Connecticut HealthLink. It's a health information exchange so that people can get access to their medical records in a HIPAA-protected manner, and those records can be shared among your physicians. So again, trying to bridge that gap in communication where things really fall apart. This day in medicine, July 29th, 1811 was when the cornerstone for Bellevue Hospital in New York was laid. What's interesting is the hospital actually began in 1736, but the cornerstone for the institution that we know today as Bellevue Hospital was laid in 1811. Now, there's such a rich history to that institution in New York. First of all, it has been a place where underserved an underserved medical population can get care throughout history. Uh, but it has really been the training ground for medical personnel for many, many years. And I talk about that for at all levels. Uh, the EMS at Bellevue, their training school, their nursing school was probably among the best in the world. Uh, when you met a Bellevue-trained nurse, when you worked with someone who was trained at that institution, you knew you were working with someone who was of the highest caliber. And needless to say, the physicians who trained at Bellevue Hospital, they were actually the first to have their medical, have a medical college affiliated with them, and they still do. They're part of New York University Medical College. So uh, Bellevue Hospital, the cornerstone for the building, was laid in 1811. 
An article I read this week and, and talked a little bit about doctors and in-flight emergencies. So you're on the plane and they ask for a doctor. There are very few worse places to be dealing with a medical emergency than on an airplane for several reasons. One is a lack of information on what's going on with the patient, what their past medical history is, especially if they're unconscious. The lack of equipment, the lack of medications, and you're fairly isolated on an airplane. Uh, it's happened to me twice, actually, being on an airplane and having to deal with a medical emergency. One person was having uh, a seizure on the airplane, and we were flying to Haiti. So I told the pilot we should probably try to land, and his remark was, we're over Cuba right now. So with that, we opted not to land in Cuba, and we made it to Haiti in time, and fortunately, the patient did well. The other time was someone with appendicitis. Uh, the reason I bring this up is because if you're traveling, make sure you have a, a comprehensive medical list available, either on your person or with the person you're traveling with, not just the medications you take, your conditions, and your allergies. You know, there's a spot on your telephone now, if you have an iPhone, there's a spot to put that in so that someone can get emergency access to your phone. Do it. It's very important. Try to avoid flying if you're ill. And I don't mean a head cold, although that's another issue on an airplane. But I'm talking about if you're going through a health crisis of some type, not a good time to get on an airplane. And it's important to really keep those things in mind for your own safety. The average American runner is getting slower. This was a study done in Copenhagen, and they looked at the overall fitness of American runners and the fact that when you look at major races, gradually the times are getting slower. The good news is more people are getting out there, and many of those people are not only not fast, but they're walking. These are good things. Uh, we don't need to worry so much about doing this in record time. But what I like to see are people out there walking and running, especially in malls. They have mall programs now, things such as that. Probably the biggest story you've all heard about this week has been the study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the Clinical Pathologic Evaluation of CTE, Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy in American Football. Well, it's gotten everybody's attention because they looked at 120 uh, 111 NFL players, and 110 of them had CTE. Now, CTE is this condition you can see in the brains of people after they die. You dissect the brain, and you look at the tau protein that's been deposited. It's a protein that's supposed to be inside vessels within the brain in the neurons and instead leaks out. And it's believed to be associated with trauma, but more importantly, it's believed to be associated with medical problems such as dementia, abnormal behavior in general. It's been associated with really a degeneration not only of the brain but of the persona themselves. Um, these are athletes who have become drug addicts, who have committed suicide, um, spousal abuse, things of that nature. So what's interesting is a couple of things. First of all, an association 
with the sport of football, as they have mentioned, does not mean causation. That does not necessarily mean football caused this condition. While we agree the condition exists, the question of it being present in 99% of NFL players, I think, is a reach. And the reason it's a reach is some of the things we talk about on this show, and that is adverse selection. There's what we call selection bias in this study. Think about it. The only people volunteering for this study are people who have something to explain in their lives. For example, I'll bet anything that O.J. has already signed up for this one, okay, to try and explain his behavior. Um, you know, people who have committed suicide, families want some reason as to why they may have committed suicide, why they became drug addicts, why they left their families and ran off. So a lot of the people who are in this study, the brains they're studying, are not people like Michael Strahan, Fran Tarkenton, uh, the Mannings, okay? People who have been successful outside of football and had, you know, great lives and successful careers, probably not donating their brains for these studies. So what would be interesting is to look at athletes who did not have these other problems in their lives, really, and see if they had CTE as well or had these changes as well. With that, we're going to take a break, and we're going to be back on with Ms. Patricia Moriarty. We're going to be chatting a little bit about National Hemochromatosis Awareness Month. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, today we are uh, chatting with, and that was the Kings of Leon, who will be at the Mohegan Sun uh, tonight, actually, and uh, should be a, a great presentation there. Uh, with that, we're going to chat today a little bit. I want to give you the phone numbers again. 860 522 9842 and 1-800-966-9842. My guest today in the studio is Ms. Patricia Moriarty. Ms. Moriarty is a high school student at Phillips Exeter Academy, and we're talking a little bit about hemochromatosis, and she has formed a hemochromatosis awareness club. Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, let's start. What motivated you to start a club for awareness of a condition like hemochromatosis? Well, so I started off like normal people. We don't really know what hemochromatosis is. And so about three years ago, I was sitting bedside in hospice care with my grandpa. And he was slowly but surely dying from hemochromatosis, which is an iron overload disorder. And at that moment, I... You know, I had heard people saying hemochromatosis, hemochromatosis, and I had no idea what it was. And then I later found out that my dad had it, my aunts had it, and I also was a carrier. And so I wanted to do something for people like me who didn't really know what hemochromatosis was. I wanted to get the word out there. And also later on, I learned from my dad that hemochromatosis was very 
common in people, especially of Irish descent, which I am, and um, but a lot of people don't know that they have it until they're like my grandpa and it's too late and they're dying from it. So I wanted to make sure that among young people like me or even middle-aged people that the word was getting out there and before it was too late that they knew they had the disease. That's a great point. Should people be tested for it? Is that one of the things you want to do with raising awareness is, you know, if it runs in your family, get tested? Yes. So that's one of the main focuses of the Exeter Hemochromatosis Awareness Club is to kind of get the word out there. And especially on club night when I was, you know, trying to promote my club to my fellow Exonians, we call each other. Um, it's an interesting. Okay. <laughs> they came up to my table and they kind of looked at my flyers and were like, "What is hemochromatosis?" And I was like, "That's exactly why I'm here. I want to, the word to get out. I want to promote getting tested, um, which is a simple procedure, just getting your blood drawn, which they then send to whatever um, place to get your blood tested for hemochromatosis." And um, so that's kind of the point of our club is to get the word out and um, promote the practice of getting tested and just, you know, where to go from there. When you say tested, are we talking about the genetic testing or are we talking about just checking iron? Um, A little bit of both, uh, both the actual test to see if you have hemochromatosis, which is you're just getting your blood drawn normally and then shipping the blood off and then also just checking genetically as well because if you have it you know it's very likely that your sister might have it your brother or your parents so just genetically as well now the treatment has always been really just blood draws yes and uh, trying to get that level of iron down uh, is is that so if you detect it in someone young are they mm-hmm. doing it are they starting because usually you don't see this till middle age right um and in women until they're postmenopausal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is, are they getting out in front? First of all, how has this been received at at your school and elsewhere? Um, it's been very welcomed at my school, especially because we're one of the few medical awareness clubs. Um, I kind of was ra- there were a few raised eyebrows and kind of confused looks when I was at club night because you know there's you know fire throwing club and baking club, and then there's the you know the serious medical awareness club that was right next to you know. Um, Democratic clubs. So there's a whole different variety of clubs at Exeter. So I think it was very welcomed on campus and they knew that I was doing it for the right reasons. And I explained that I was motivated uh, with my personal reasons. And I really wanted to make sure that people at Exeter were becoming aware of what hemochromatosis was. So what are your plans? How are you going to get the word out? This has been uh, Hemochromatosis Awareness Month, but what what's the plan? What's the plan of attack this year in your senior year? So within the past year, we've had club meetings, which were held at dinner, and we would just sit around a round table and bring my laptop and take down notes and brainstorm how we were going to get the word about hemochromatosis out on campus. We posted flyers around campus, put pamphlets in the um, health center, And so this upcoming year, I plan on doing similar things with just general PSAs throughout campus and um, also promoting blood drives and getting people into the habit of just getting their blood drawn if they want to get tested or if, God forbid, they have hemochromatosis, the process of just getting phlebotomies. And also um, this upcoming year, we're planning on doing more 
community-based events, maybe reaching out into the town of Exeter, posting more on Facebook, and um, just trying to push the awareness in general because we can't necessarily bring them to get tested, but if we you know, make hemochromatosis very, very uh, present in their Exeter lives, it would be very good. That's great, but uh, we chatted a little bit before that you now have kind of an international link to your organization. Yes. Um, So I was in contact with the hemochromatosis uh, program in Australia, which they're very, very good. They have a very vibrant Facebook page, and um, they were actually very nice to share my article about my community service here for hemochromatosis in Connecticut and New Hampshire. They shared that in Australia, so I have some friends in Australia now. Um, And they are also very generous in sending pamphlets and general flyers out um, to New Hampshire so I could share them there. So did they find you on social media? I always find this interesting. I mean, you must have a Facebook page, right? Yes. Okay. And oh, and by the way, if someone wants to go to that face, what is the Facebook page? It is Exeter Hemochromatosis Awareness Club. Okay, so just search that up, and we're right there. Okay, so did they find you kind of through social media, the Australian organization? Um, I, my dad and I actually reached out to them, and we knew that they had flyers available. We saw them online, and so we kind of emailed them up back in, oh gosh, August, and asked if they could possibly ship over some flyers, and they were very, very kind and sent a plethora of pamphlets, stickers, flyers, everything that you could have asked for. Um, I even got a flash drive in there. Really? (laughs) So um, they were very kind in sending all of that over and helping me start up my club at Exeter. Are there any other organizations for hemochromatosis in the United States? There are. Um, I think the strongest one we found was the Australian one. Um, so I think that was another reason that I was very motivated in starting the one at Exeter is because the ones that I researched in America, they were there, but they weren't very active and they weren't nearly as prominent in the community as I wanted them to be. And I think with with especially getting the word out, I wanted more of a um, vibrant and active uh, program going on, like the one in Australia. Okay. Well, I have to tell you, this is an ambitious endeavor. Uh, So what are your plans? I mean, you're a senior now uh, in high school, obviously very mature and well-directed. What are you going to do? Oh, gosh. So this upcoming fall will be hectic. I'm planning on applying to colleges and especially bringing my hemochromatosis club to a whole new level and um, bringing more events to school, whether that be standing out in the commons and handing out flyers or trying to get my club to be even bigger on campus. Um, And also in the future, just wherever I end up, whatever institution I go to for college, I'm planning on bringing a hemochromatosis club there as well. I have to tell you, that's great, and we really admire you uh, for doing this, uh, especially at your young age. And apropos to this, our next guest uh, in the next half hour is Dr. Jeffrey Gordon, president of the Connecticut State Medical Society and a hematologist-oncologist by specialty. So uh, we'll be chatting with him, maybe a little bit more about hemochromatosis in addition to uh, our discussions about what's going on in the state of Connecticut. Patricia? Best of luck with this project, and let us know if we could help any further. 
Awesome. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Dr. Jeffrey Gordon. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And if you're in the area of Mohegan Sun, the Kings of Leon are there tonight. Tomorrow will be basketball. The Connecticut Sun is playing. As you know now, they're tied for first place. Uh, after Imagine that a basketball game got rained out last night. Um, that was clearly a first. They were playing the Washington Mystics, and there was a leak in the roof. And there was so much rain, and they couldn't repair it because it was still raining. So uh, they had a rained-out basketball match last night. Um, but um, they're playing really well, and the games are exciting, and I hope to see you there. Next up, my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Gordon. Dr. Gordon is a hematologist-oncologist who practices in New London, and he is also president of the Connecticut State Medical Society. Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Tony. I appreciate coming on back. So since before we get into State Medical Society stuff, hemochromatosis, how often do you see it in your practice? I see it somewhat commonly. Uh, being a blood specialist, people are sent to me to diagnose it and treat it. It's more common than th- people uh, think. Uh, even in uh, So geographically, do we see more of it here in New London or in, in Connecticut as opposed to other states? I'm not quite certain about the geographic distribution in in Connecticut. Uh, I know that it is um, more common than people think because a lot of people can have it and not have any symptoms or problems from it and never be tested looking for it. So actually you could go through life and never have symptoms? Yes. I actually see people who are diagnosed with it, and then I ask them about their family history, and they tell me, oh, nobody else in the family has it. And then I recommend they talk with their parents, for example, and we test you know, the parents, and lo and behold, their father or their mother has it, and perfectly fine and never knew it. Wow. Well, let's move on. Well, let's get to the State Medical Society. How have we done this legislative term? Uh, we're semi-out of the term, I guess. Uh, but how's it been for our patients? What's been going on? It's been actually a successful year for our patients. We've done a lot of advocacy for patient care across uh, across the state, and it's been very successful as far as things we've looked to do and things we've looked not to happen. Very successful year. Well, the thing on everybody's mind is insurance, obviously. Uh, And where do we stand with that as far as here in Connecticut in terms of the exchanges that were set up or are available to people or, you know, people who can't afford insurance otherwise. Where are we at in Connecticut as compared to other states? We're somewhat better than in other states because in some other states there's only one insurance in the market or some parts of other states there's no viable insurance. So we're actually a little bit ahead of the curve. However, it doesn't mean we're out of the woods. As far as uh, problems with the exchanges, we're well aware of uh, a number of issues with regards to the Affordable Care Act. And uh, the State Medical Society has been a leader in highlighting what's been working and trying to support it, but also highlighting what's not working and to try to make bipartisan efforts to fix it so we can continue to provide the care to the people of Connecticut who need it. 
You know, one of the biggest successes, I guess, that I've been following is the State Medical Society really trying successfully blocking the Cigna merger uh, and really, again, limiting try, the attempt to limit the number of choices for uh, health insurance here in Connecticut. Yeah, we've actually been a national leader on that, uh, with, uh, and we've had a lot of help from the American Medical Association. We've been uh, major uh, opponents to what we call the insurance mega-mergers, Right. And so we were very pleased with the uh, federal court rulings, recognizing that especially here in Connecticut, those types of mega-mergers, which really become monopolies, would have a huge negative impact on uh, people uh, getting care and physicians being able to provide that care. So that is a major success that we've had, and it's been recognized nationally. Jeff, let's talk a little bit about something coming up and something I didn't know about really until uh, Kelly sent me the flyer, which is CT Health Link and a health information exchange. You know, we all get tied up in this HIPAA stuff and sharing. What can you share? What can't you share? Um, can you talk a little bit about this Connecticut Health Link initiative from the State Medical Society? I'd be happy to. It's, uh, it's a huge undertaking by the Medical Society. Uh, with our colleagues in uh, Kansas. Uh, and what a health information exchange is, it's uh, a way for all these different electronic medical records and electronic patient care databases to try to be unified in one setting so you can access it. So instead of, for example, I'm in my office and I'm seeing people and I have to log into multiple different hospitals and try to figure out where people are getting their care. Oh, yeah. Oh, making, yeah. You know, that making phone calls and faxes. While someone is sitting in my office and I'm trying to figure out how to help them, what I can do is I can log in to the uh, Connecticut Health Link. That's the name of the health information exchange that we have. And I can access that data. It's extremely secure and extremely uh, cyber safe. And I'm able in real time to access data that I need uh, and can use that, again, in real time to take care of people. And it's also extremely helpful for things I'm doing that others might need to know about. So it's, it's a great way to access the information. So wherever you are or wherever you get your care, the hope is it can be easy to uh, access and easy to use. How does the information get there? Okay, so as you raise the issue, I mean, I'm on multiple systems now. We have Epic at, in New London. We have Meditech at Bacchus. And we have NextGen. I'm on that one in, uh, at UConn. Uh, so how does that information all get – because this almost sounds like the Holy Grail – in terms of being able to get all that information in one location for a patient? Well, I agree with you. I mean, uh, that it, you have to have multiple different systems right now up and running. I have five different electronic medical records okay. up and running on my computer uh, in the office to, to access different info. So what this is, is um, in real time or at least daily or multiple times a day, hospitals, physician groups, Healthcare facilities that are participating will upload the data, uh, and it's done by the vendors who already have their electronic medical records up and running, into a single uh, place. Uh, it's in kind of the cloud, so to speak. And um, because it's being updated daily and multiple times a day, 
the people, the hospitals or the physician groups or the health centers, they don't have to worry about doing the upload. We've already contracted with their vendors to be able to do those types of connections and uploads. And the um, health information exchange uh, that's being run by, uh, helping us being run by Diameter Health of Farmington, they actually help coordinate getting that data into the information exchange so that way when you or I log into it via the web, all that work's already done and it makes it easy for us and easy for patients. So as a patient, I'm just going to sign up in some way, shape, or form. And even though there are records about me in multiple different formats, um, somehow this company that you're speaking of is going to be able to get that information and put it on CT HealthLink. Yes, uh, that is correct. You know, patients um, you know, do have an option of opting out if they're concerned for any reason. We, we certainly would understand that. We encourage patients uh, to participate. And we already know that this system works because the model we're using is based upon a model that has been up and running in Kansas. And it's actually a very successful and user-friendly model. And since we're partnering with our colleagues in Kansas and using their model and their system, we already have a, you know, a great um, lead-in uh, to have this uh, successful because we're using a uh, proven system and network. Jeff, I've got to ask you, who pays for it? I mean, who, who's paying the company to do all this work? Is, it coming, is there a fee for the patient? Is it coming from a, a grant of some type? There's no fee for the patients. Patients are not charged anything. Um, the fees are hospitals that participate and physician groups uh, that participate. Um, we've, we're keeping it as um, cost-friendly as uh, possible. And, in fact, compared to a lot of the electronic networks that people already pay for uh, for their offices and hospitals, this is a lot cheaper than that. Uh, we're getting good support from our colleagues in Kansas to get this up and running. Uh, but one of the important things, in addition to that, the fact that patients are not paying, taxpayer money is not being used. Unlike the state of Connecticut, which is trying to spend 30 to $40 million of money the state doesn't have to get their own network, we're using no taxpayer money whatsoever. So it's all, in a sense, private money for the hospitals and physician groups that, uh, that sign up. And each year that it's up and running, uh, the, any, all the cost savings will be passed on, so each year you sign up, it will become cheaper to do. Uh, and that's actually what we're seeing in Kansas. Cost savings get passed on to, participate, to participants, and it becomes uh, more cost-effective for them to continue to participate. Jeff, this sounds great. I've got more questions for you, and I'm sure other people are just pondering the, the questions because this is an enormous project. So we're going to take a short break, but then I want to get back to you uh, to chat a little bit about some of the intricacies of this new CT Health Link and especially what we could expect in the next legislative session. What are the big moves coming up? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. We're in the last segment with my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Gordon, and we're talking about some of the new initiatives for patients in the state of Connecticut, especially the CT Health Link that will be coming online. I understand, so you've had some patients already involved in CT Health Link. Is it 
is it re- ready for prime time now, or is it still in the study stage? It's actually operational. Uh, we're the first health information exchange in Connecticut. Uh, we already have turned the uh, lights on, so to speak, and we're um, in the process of um, signing up uh, physician groups and signing up um, hospitals all across the state. There's been a huge interest because there's not been anything like this before in uh, Connecticut to this uh, extent. So the large groups, uh, for example, I'm working a lot at UConn now. Is UConn part of it? Um, do they become part of it somehow? Or how do we know which hospitals are involved? Or um, Who do you have so far? Well, so far we're in the process of actually um, dealing with all the contracts to sign uh, hospitals and physician groups up. Uh, we've gotten uh, interest from nearly all the hospitals across the state, and all the physician groups, uh, small and large, across the state have expressed interest as well. So right now we're just finalizing the uh, paperwork, um, and once that's set, which is going to be very soon, uh, then you'll start seeing more and more uh, groups and hospitals enter into the um, uh, health information exchange. Will this render the other portals, so to speak, kind of obsolete? Because you'd have, as a patient, you'd have just one portal to go into and get all your information? It wouldn't necessarily. The, the Connecticut Health Link is not an electronic medical record, um, so patients still can access the portals to whatever system they're in, such as Epic. Um, so what this is doing is this is trying to bridge all of the different electronic medical record systems across the state, and actually in other states as well, and try to have one access point um, especially for uh, physicians working in hospitals and working in the uh, office. But it's not going to replace the electronic medical records. It's, it's really being viewed, viewed as a, a super bridge to connect them all better. Jeff, it, it just sounds like such an ambitious project. I, I've, I'm in awe that you've gotten this far with the thing, uh, and to see it uh, actually operational will be tremendous. I have to ask you, all right, so what's coming up in the next legislative session? What, what are we going to see? What are we advocating for on behalf of our patients? Well, one of the big things we're advocating for uh, is to make certain that we're continuing to support uh, the Medicaid expansion in this state. Uh, a lot of that's going to depend upon what happens in Congress and uh, at the federal level. Uh, that will have huge impact upon patient care, especially if support is lessened for the Medicaid expansion that happened in this state. Uh, We're also advocating to make certain that every year there seems to be continued efforts to try to make it more difficult for patients to have access to their patient uh, care data, especially with regards to insurance companies, and we continue to push against that, basically wanting to make certain people have freedom to access their records uh, and uh, the... the, um, Uh, patient care uh, reports that they may need. Uh, Also, we're continuing to advocate for expanding efforts to support a lot of the small physician practices across the state, especially in rural areas. We had a small business exchange expansion passed to help support those groups uh, and those physicians, and we're going to continue to fight to keep that support and try to expand it more and more so we can keep all the local positions all across the state operating in all the towns and cities uh, where people really want to go to get their care and stay close to home. That's going to be a continued big effort. 
And last but not least, who knows what's going to happen with the budget uh, issues next year. Um, They're trying to wrangle with it now, and who knows what will happen next year. So we're going to continue to advocate strongly for the patient care programs that are in place to be funded fully so people can benefit from them. Because if they they go away, it's going to be a huge detriment on patient care, especially uh, low-income people who rely upon a number of these uh, state programs. Uh, Jeff, I've got to ask you, when you mentioned Medicaid expansion, uh, what do you mean uh, in terms of the amount of services Medicaid will support or uh, getting more people on Medicaid? Uh, when we say expansion, is it mostly the services? It, it mostly is the services. Um, you know, Connecticut made a decision a number of years ago to, ex- to expand Medicaid based upon the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it's now facing massive uh, multi-billion dollar budget deficit, so it's not going to be able on its own to sustain the Medicaid expansion, so it's going to continue to rely upon federal funds. So we want to make certain, first and foremost, people who have already gotten insurance through the Medicaid expansion aren't kicked off. We do understand there's limits to how much money in general um, can be spent on any government program, but we want to make certain that the basics are funded but at the same time that Medicaid reimbursement to hospitals and physicians are not cut, because historically we've seen very low levels of reimbursement, and it's caused a lot of physicians to not accept people on Medicaid, and we don't want to see that happen. There's been efforts over the years to improve the standing and to try to encourage more physician groups and physicians to participate in Medicaid. Uh, and so those are big issues that we're continuing to, to fight for. And it's all going to come down to what happens with the federal budgets and with the state budgets. Jeff, I want to thank you for everything you do as president of the State Medical Society. I hope to get you on before your term is up. You know, you guys have a short term. It's only one year, right? It is one year, um, and that's fine. It's, that's right. We have lots of leaders who uh, rise through the ranks and become. So I, I, I've been proud to serve uh, you know, for um, uh, the year. I have two months to go, and actually it's the 225th anniversary of the State Medical Society. Wow. So we're going to be highlighting that. Uh, you know, tremendous. So That's tremendous. And I, wanna get, I really want to start talking a little bit more about tort reform and malpractice reform in Connecticut, a big issue, and even at the federal level. Oh, absolutely. Jeff, listen, thank you. Thanks again for your time, and thanks for all your service. Oh, thank you very much. Take care. Great talking with you. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you. Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Olko has been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. I also want to thank Ms. Patricia Moriarty for spending time with us today and raising awareness about hemochromatosis. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be away. Um, So we're going to be having some taped programs that have been put together for you. Uh, Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can do that today by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.